too bad. You're not as, uh, as evolutionarily advanced as me, so too bad. So not only is this plant waking up early, getting all the CO2, it's shading them out, and it's creating this oxygen-rich environment that they really don't do well with. So it is a one, two, three, triple whammy if you're a native plant. Welcome back to Working in the Weeds. I'm Christine Krebs, Education and Training Specialist out here at the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. And as always, across the table from me is Dr. Farrell, the Center Director. Hello, Christine. Hey, and um, today we're going to talk about another plant. So our previous episode was about water hyacinth. What does this green menace look like? What makes it a menace? And this week's episode is going to be dedicated to hydrilla. Well, this is sort of the plant that started it all, right? So back a couple of years ago... We were talking about this plant internally. We've got a bunch of new faculty, so we're all reading stuff and we're going back into old literature. So we were talking about it in the office a lot. So one day I just said, you know what, I'm going to dedicate some time and I'm going to start a series of blogs and really kind of get into what this plant is, how it works, because I think it could be really helpful for other people to learn what we're all internally learning at this same point. So I did this big, massive brain dump onto paper one day. I gave all of that to Rachel, our uh, communications manager, and said, okay, here's all this stuff about hydrilla. What do we want to do with it? What's the next step? She reads through it and goes, well, this really isn't a blog at this point. What this is, is a podcast conversation. I said, well, that's fine, except that we don't have a podcast. So what do we do? She said, let's buy some microphones and start a podcast. So here we are now, four seasons later, and we're just now getting back to the conversation that really started this whole thing off. Yeah, exactly. We we were like, okay, let's do a podcast. We were like, well, we're not going to dive right into talking about hydrilla. Let's kind of give people the story about the center, the story of the science, the people that work here. And so that's where you all have been following along and listening and getting to know us and learning along with us. And that's what's so exciting about this season. We're really going to talk about these big players, these plants that cause these problems. And hydrilla is the one that people talk about the most. If you're involved in natural resources, if you're a sportsman, you are familiar probably with this plant. And so we look forward to kind of talking about this plant a little bit, both perspectives, right? Good and bad. And if you're a Florida citizen, you probably know about hydrilla and you probably have a very strong conviction about hydrilla, either for it or against it. So this is why we've sort of built to this topic. We wanted to set some other groundwork, kind of get to this place. But I think we're here now and we're ready to start unpacking some of this. And this is by no means going to be the definitive episode on hydrilla. This is going to get us started. We will come back to this topic over and over and over again because we could literally have a month of recording on this topic alone and still not mine all that we know about this plant and why it's so important and why it's so controversial. Yeah. And for those of you who may be familiar with it, may have strong convictions towards this plant or have never heard of it before, I think before we really get into the weeds about this plant, we talk about what it even looks like and where does it grow in the water body? Because water hyacinth, what we talked about previously, is a floating plant. So it's above the water surface. And that, from that episode, you learned there's a lot of um, special intricacies that come with a floating plant, some challenges in management. But hydrilla is a submersed aquatic plant, so it is under the water. Jay, do you want to walk them through botanically kind of what this plant looks like? 
Yeah, so this is a plant that's actually rooted. Where water hyacinth has roots that float, this actually starts in the soil as either a little sprouted fragment of a tip or a tuber, which is a little vegetative uh, structure that grows off of the roots, and then it starts growing up to the surface. Now, if you're a, a sportsman in this state, either a waterfowl enthusiast or an angler of some sort, I'm sure you have run across it in some of our public water. But if you're not, you may say, well, I just don't have any type of touchstone or experience with this plant, but I guarantee you have. If you have ever been in the Orlando area, if you have ever been on the turnpike and you have exited off and you have seen a retention pond and you see this scummy sort of uh, algae covered layer that's kind of a rough texture on the surface of the water, that's hydrilla. The stuff grows almost everywhere. The majority of our central Florida retention ponds have it in there. So I guarantee you, if you'll start looking, you will see this plant. You have seen it before and you just didn't know what it was. So if you were to take a sprig of hydrilla from the water, if you were to grab this plant and look at it, I would start off by saying it's it's like a long plant with leaves that are whirled around, right? And so they kind of look, when you look above, it kind of looks like a star, right? These leaves are kind of... Yeah, and it's a really compressed, compact leaf. So you have your stem that comes up and you have that whirl of leaves. And as you get up closer to the top of the water, those whirls become closer and closer together. They're just almost stacked on top of each other. And in a segment that's an inch long, you may have six or eight of those whirls all packed in there. So it gives us this super compact, really tight look. And it truly is just about anywhere that has water standing year-round. And and when I, for those of you who have no experience with this plant, I would equate it to kind of looking like a giant pipe cleaner. Like it's just a giant fuzzy plant that grows very efficiently. So for those that work in the weeds, what plants could they might, could they confuse it with though? So for professionals... If I came across something in the field and it may not be hydrilla, what else could it be? So there's a couple of lookalikes that we can find out there. One will be Elodea and the other would be Egeria. Now, if you just grab the plants, they're going to look really similar. Like the number of leaves in the world are different and things like that. But the telltale signs of a hydrilla plant is when you look at that leaf and you feel it, they're going to be rough. If you look at it closer through a magnifying glass, you're going to see little teeth on the on the ribs of that leaf, and it gives it a really tough kind of rough texture. The other dead giveaway is when you pull it out of the soil, if you find these little white tubers, these little potato-looking tubers, that is a dead giveaway that you've got hydrilla. And for those of you listening, we'll have the plant directory profile linked to the show notes so you could check out what this plant looks like on our website. So you keep saying tubers. And for some of us, I myself, when I first started this job, didn't know that some plants had tubers. I don't know what that is. So what do they look like? What are they called? What's a tuber? Well, here's the real problem. So the classic tuber is a potato. Okay. So it's just basically a root that kind of swells up and fills up with starch, right? Okay. So we know what a tuber is. We call the little reproductive structures that hydrilla makes, we call them tubers, but they're not really tubers. So they're actually kind of a swollen stem. It's kind of like a tuber, but it's kind of not like a tuber. And botanically, it's really a, 
it's kind of by itself botanically. And you get botanists and they'll start arguing, well, it is a tuber. Well, it's not a tuber. It's a this, it's a that. But it doesn't really fit any defined other botanical part. Mm. So we're all wrong regardless of what we call it. So we're going to call it tubers. And I like the word tuber. And if you think about it, the theme of this episode is that this plant is just complicated. It's got it figured out. It's got these little nuances that make it persist in the environment. So tuber is one characteristic of it doing that. And even beyond that, it's got these little things called turions that form up in the canopy, which is another reproductive structure. So it can reproduce if you clip it and a fragment floats away. There are turions, there are tubers. This thing, it is a survivor. It is a spreader. So it's it's a, a very, very interesting plant from a botanical standpoint. So now that we kind of know what this plant looks like, and we realize that it's probably been around us this whole time. And the fact that it's underwater, we may not always see it right away or, or realize just the impact that it does have on the environment. Now, you've mentioned or we know that we want to talk about all sides of the story, that there are groups of individuals that value this plant. And then there are groups of individuals that don't want to see it in the water bodies ever. And then there's this group in the middle that isn't really 100 percent sure how to feel or where they want it, how much they want it managed. So with that, what are some things that like, what good does this plant do? Why do people value it? Absolutely. And I think where we need to start with this is so often is human nature, we want to put things in nice, tight little boxes, right? We will want to say it is good. It is bad. It is black. It is white. We want to think in ones and zeros, right? It's when things get out of the black, out of the white, and get into this gray, and we start going, well, how much gray is black and how much gray is actually white? So this is where we are with hydrilla. We want to place it somewhere so it's nice and tidy, but it doesn't really fit there because it does things that are clearly damaging to the environment, but it does things that aren't necessarily damaging to the environment. So let's get started with what does it do that is positive, okay? So let's start talking about what this plant does that people would actually value. Well, one of the things that it does is it provides structure in the water. So fish in particular like to associate with things, structure in the water. Open water, they swim through. But if there are things there that they can associate with, they're going to spend more time there. It doesn't matter if it's plants or it can be a sunken Christmas tree. It can be just about anything. They want edge. They want this edge effect. So that's why when I'm on the water in the morning, you'll see these bass boats race into the edge of the lake or they'll go to their honey holes and they know that's where the bass are. They're hanging out. Or on the edge of almost any plant, mm. right? Because bass in particular are, they're the great white shark of a lake. They are always cruising, looking for something to eat and they will eat anything they can get in their mouth. Literally, it doesn't matter if it is a frog, a fish or a bird. If it is in the water and it goes in their mouth, they will eat it. So what they like to do is cruise like a great big shark on the edge of these plants because the prey fish know that the great white is somewhere out there lurking behind them. So they want to stay on the edge of these plants so that if they see that guy, boom, they can dart into the plants, get cover and get safety. So it is good to have plants in this system. It stabilizes the ecosystem. We've talked about this in previous episodes. So there are good things that plants do. You need plants in the water. And hydrilla is a plant in the water that does really, really well in our conditions. So it provides structure. And the other thing is, it's going to provide structure that our native plants won't provide. Now, 
When I say that, I don't mean that it is unique, that it does something the natives don't do, Mm -hmm. but it grows where the natives won't always grow. So a lot of our native plants, like eelgrass or peppergrass or spatterdock, they're going to grow in three, four, maybe eight feet of water. So they usually are going to sort of be in the shallow water out into the water, but the the big middle, the open area, the deeper areas, they're not going to inhabit. So you've got this nice ring of plants around this, what we call the littoral zone. However, hydrilla can grow in 25 feet of water or more. So it doesn't have to be limited to the littoral zone. It can use the entire lake. So just having that structure and that fish habitat on the edge of the lake, hydrilla allows you to have structure throughout. So that is a very valuable thing. So now the entire lake is fishable instead of just that ring. So that is a good thing. That can be a helpful thing. Yeah. And fishable, in the, like a lake with less hydrilla in the middle is still just as fishable. It's just as someone who likes to fish, I like to catch when I fish. I don't like to fish and then leave without catching. So when I know there's more hydrilla, more edge, more bass uh, strategy in that area, I feel like there's more of a likelihood But when I consider the lake's health and the function of the lake, whether there's hydrilla or not, I could still fish. Absolutely. So it just opens up the entire water body to a recreation spot for that angler, right? Now, a second really cool thing that it does is it dramatically increases water clarity. So our lakes are shallow. They're nutrient-rich, which means we usually have a lot of algae. So a greenish-colored water is very common throughout the majority of Florida. But when you have a lot of hydrilla, you're out there and fishing, and all of a sudden, instead of only being able to see 6 or 12 inches down into the water column, you may be able to see 2 or 3 feet. And one of the things that uh, anglers will commonly say, and you'll hear people say this, is the water is gin-clear. So it's crystal clear water where you have that hydrilla. Now, the reason for this, there's three reasons. One is you have a lot of paraphyton. So paraphyton is this sort of complex of algae and bacteria and fungi that are going to stick on any surface that's underwater. Well, when you have hydrilla, and as we were describing earlier, you've got all of those leaves on this big, long stalk all the way from the bottom to the top, you have tremendous surface area for all of this paraphyton to accumulate. And now all of that bacteria, algae, fungi, they're filtering the water. They're pulling those nutrients out of the water column. They're competing with the other algae that's floating. So now all of a sudden the water starts to clear up because there's less nutrients for the algae. Now they're not taking the nutrients out of the water body. Because the plant is still, whether the plant's taking it in or not, the plant is still in the water body. Right. And they're just cycling those nutrients. But during the middle of summer, when everything's actively growing, they're pulling that phosphorus, that nitrogen out of the water column, and the water gets super clear. With that, that hydrilla, as it grows to the surface, it starts to stabilize the water. And there's less wind, there's less wave, there's less fetch in that water. So your normal green algae cells, they're fairly neutrally buoyant, but they need a little bit of wave action to keep them suspended in the water column. Well, as that hydrilla starts to stabilize the water, the algae cells will just eventually settle out. So they're still there, but they're on the bottom. So now, again, that clarifies the water. And third, with that 
water stabilization, you don't have the bottom being stirred up by waves where you have those fixed nutrients from old plants that died. We were talking about water hyacinth in the last episode, dropping leaves, putting all that muck on the bottom. Well, when wind comes and stirs that up, they begin to break down and it releases nutrients. But where you have all that hydrilla, you're sucking the nutrients out of the water and that bottom stays very stable because the wind isn't mixing it up. Which that area, if you think about where there's newer places in the open water that hydrilla is taking um, space from, that open area is used to wave action. It wants that movement, but instead hydrilla is there holding it down. Absolutely. So now that angler standing up on the front of their boat, they're looking for fish and you can actually see the species that you are out searching for. You can see it swim by five or six feet away. So it is super cool to have that hydrilla, that edge, that clear water. It really is cool. And it helps that bass because they, they feed by line of sight. The better they can see, the better they can eat, the better they eat, the bigger they get. So now you're catching a four-pound bass instead of a one-pound bass. Because he's been able to hunt here and become, you know, dominant in this spot. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are a couple of things, but then there's another user group out there, and it is the waterfowl enthusiast. So ducks start moving down from the north to the south as winter progresses. As they come down either the Atlantic Flyway or the Mississippi Flyway, they're coming through a lot of crop areas. On the way down, there are soybeans, there are corn, there's all of these things for them to eat. But when you get into Florida, we're not a big agronomic production state. We don't have a lot of soybeans. We don't grow a lot of corn. So by the time they get down here, they need other things to eat. And hydrilla is a food source that they will absolutely utilize. So in lieu of having all this grain, we have hydrilla for the ducks. So it is a preferred habitat for a lot of uh, waterfowl enthusiasts. So they like areas with more hydrilla, and they will tell you the more the better. Yeah, but then I'd like to offer another perspective, right? So there's other user groups of lakes, and that's where this sort of, I think we start to see this sort of controversy because there's homeowners on the lake that don't fish and they perhaps don't hunt, but they do enjoy having their dock accessible for their boats or their jet skis. Or, you know, for example, sometimes I'll fish off of a kayak or just kayak in general, but if I go across a water body with hydrilla, I'll have to fight my paddle half the time because there's hydrilla catching it. And so there's other user groups on these lakes. There's people that live off of these lakes. And so managing agencies have to balance all these perspectives and opinions. And so scientists like Dr. Farrell and the experts here, you know, take the scientific information and the patterns we see to continue to kind of share the story. And so that's what today is about. And that is exactly the issue. So for every angler that wants a lot of hydrilla, there's a kayaker. For every duck hunter that wants more hydrilla, there is someone that wants to be able to have their kids swim off the end of their dock. So this really starts getting complicated because you have people that want drastically different things. You want one with more, 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 and another group that says zero, zero, zero. And here we are back to black and white, binary, yes, no, good, bad. So therein lies the controversy, right? And because neither group is looking at what the other group needs, they're actually only looking at what they need. So there is the controversy. Yeah. And before we kind of tell the other side of the story, right, some of the uh, negative effects that hydrilla can kind of have on a lake system, I want to remind our listeners that if you want to learn more about lakes and landscapes, we have an episode that kind of dives into really why it's important to consider the context, the type of lake you're looking at, the system you're looking at, and the personality of that system, right? 
uh, Dr. Farrell talks about how unique they are. Um, so yeah, so really, what is this other side of the story, right? So there's, it provides structure for fish. It clarifies the water. These, there are these you know, waterfowl enthusiasts appreciate the hydrilla as well for the surface area benefits. But what are some of the challenges we see that this plant brings into the environment? One of the biggest issues that we have with this plant is its absolutely crazy growth rate and how it grows. So we mentioned earlier in the description that you can start with either a fragment of a piece of plant or a tuber or a turion. Yes, I'm using the word tuber. That it starts off with this little strip of a plant, just one single stem that is coming up. And there is energy in that little tuber to get it going. Because usually if this plant's going to grow in 20 feet of water, sunlight is rarely going to penetrate 20 feet deep. So it's got to have enough energy. And that's why that tuber with that starch in there is so important because it gets that plant started. Oh, interesting. So it takes off. It's going to the surface. It's looking for light. It knows light is up there somewhere. Well, light is not all created equal, right? So we've all seen a rainbow and we've got red on one end of the rainbow and your blue lights, blue indigo violet on the other. Plants take up red light and they can utilize it in photosynthesis and they can utilize blue light. Right in the middle is green. Plants can't use green light. They don't want green light. And that's why plants are actually green. So they can't utilize that light. So they reflect it. So if you ever seen somebody wearing a green shirt, the shirt's not green. It's just absorbing all of the colors that aren't green. But next time you're talking to somebody, you go, why are plants green? Well, it's because they reflect green light, <laughs> right? So then you can, you can seem smart for a minute. There we go. So red light is lower energy. So it will actually start really moving further into that water column because it's moving slower. It's just less, less energy potential. So it goes further down in the water column. So as that plant is going up, it sees that red light and it keeps going. It's like, okay, that's where I'm headed. That's where, that's what I need. As it gets up close to the surface, now it can start seeing the blue light because the blue light is going to start being picked up. When it sees that blue light, it starts to branch. So you go from this single stem going up to now all of a sudden it starts putting on all of these tips tip, 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 tip. And then the tips will put on tips and then those tips will put on tips and it starts to fan out across the water surface. So think of like a, an oak tree. You've got a base, it goes up and then branches out nice and big. So that it may cover a half acre, but it'll have a single root system potentially in the middle. Yeah, you've mentioned people will grab a piece and then pull, 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 and then really it's just this one little single stem at the bottom making it all work. So because of that, now you've got 80% of your biomass of that entire plant in the top foot of water. So it really grows all of that biomass is up at the top. So the problem with that is now all of a sudden you're shading. So you've got this one rooted area but you're shading a huge area. And the shading issue becomes more important in just a second. But the other thing that this plant does that makes it just so remarkable, it's a remarkable plant, is how it conducts its photosynthesis. Now, this is going to be kind of complicated, but stick with me because I think we're going to be able to get through it. So we're going to come out the other side. But photosynthesis simply said, the plant takes carbon dioxide and it converts it into plant parts. Okay, that's all it does. Well, 
hydrilla does this better than any other plant just about that we know of. All right. So it is able to wake up very, very early in the morning. It has it requires very tiny amounts of light to get it kicked off in the morning and start it moving. It then is very, very efficient at removing the carbon dioxide from the water and incorporating that into new plant parts. But here's the problem. All the other native plants. Now, remember, native plants are like valcinaria, your eelgrass, peppergrass or um, pondweed. So they kind of grow up singularly. They don't grow up and branch out. So they don't have as much surface area. They, they're, they're a bit more fragile that way. And they also just don't grow as fast. The other problem is they don't wake up as early in the morning. They need more light to get it started. Well, hydrilla gets up early. It gets down to breakfast sooner. And all of that carbon dioxide that's in the water, super easy to take it, convert it into new plant parts, and away it goes. By the time those other native plants wake up, all the carbon dioxide is gone. The only thing left is carbonate. Now, they can use carbonate, that's CO3 instead of CO2. Mm -hmm. It can use it, but it's a little harder to use, all right? So it's got to do a few extra steps, and it's got to burn a little bit more energy to get that stuff converted. So the analogy that Bill Haller has always given me is hydrilla gets up early. It gets down to breakfast first. It eats all the biscuits and gravy. By the time eelgrass shows up, all that's left is salad and Bricks carrots. and yogurt. And things you don't want. You know, it's the, it's the granola at this point. So they start off behind the eight ball because hydrilla gets to it first, gets all the easy stuff. So because of that, it grows super, super fast and it just has a leg up. And I've heard or rumor has it that hydrilla can grow with moonlight. So yeah. is it growing at night too? It's just like going wild? So this massive growth rate with hydrilla, there's all sorts of campfire tales that people tell about it, right? It grows so fast. If you have a full moon, it'll even grow at night. Well, actually, that doesn't happen. Uh, the moonlight is very, very, very tiny amounts of light, even too little for hydrilla. And it's not in the right spectrum. It's not blue and red. Okay. So even if there were enough moonlight, it's not the right type of light. But the fact remains, it grows so fast. People say the only way this plant can do this is if it's growing at night, too. Yeah. And so... Thinking of the growth rate, there's a study that was done, and they found how much it grows per day. And I'm pretty sure it was a trivia question. So for those of you that heard the trivia episode, you know this answer as well. Dr. Farrell, how much does it grow in a day, and how does that – and remember, y'all, think about how it grows, that it branches out. So, Yeah, so everybody said it grows an inch a day. This plant grows an inch a day. Well, Mike Netherland and Leanne Glomsky actually – put these plants in containers, and both of them work for U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They did this at the facility in Louisville, Texas. They grew these plants for five weeks. They pulled them out and measured them every week, like every little piece, every little tip got measured and added up. At the end of five weeks, they found that that plant was putting on 191 inches of growth per day. Per day. Because every little tip was growing at about an inch a day. So the growth rate is just massive. And when they compared that to like peppergrass or pondweed, oh, it was just growing a couple of inches a week versus 191 inches a day. And so that is like numerical evidence of just like, look at how much these natives have to work harder just to get 
to grow what this plant can grow in one day, these plants are growing in one, trying to push out in a week. And even worse, the hydrilla is going to grow where the pepper grass can't grow either. So even where it can grow, it's getting outcompeted, and hydrilla is just taking the entire lake. It's like the bully that can take over the whole playground, not just the slide, you know? It, it, but then it gets worse. All right. So as this plant is growing, as hydrilla is growing, we were talking a little bit of, a moment ago about water clarity and how it dramatically improves water clarity. Now, a lot of people will say that it improves water quality. Now, water clarity is a big component of water quality, but they are not necessarily equal. All right. Because that plant, hydrilla, it's growing. It's pulling all that CO2 out of the water. Well, CO2 is an acidifier. When the CO2 is gone, all of a sudden your pH starts to rise. Normal water, around pH 7. All right. A lot of our lakes, there's some limestone in them, so they may be 7.5 or 8. You'll go into a hydrilla mat in the middle of the day, measure pH, and it'll be almost 10. So, that is a massive change in pH. And now all of a sudden these other biological organisms are going, whoa, this is a kind of a rough neighborhood because pH 10 is super, super high. So just because the water is clear doesn't necessarily mean it is of higher quality. And for some of our listeners who want to dive more into the details of this topic, Dr. Candace Prince actually has an awesome blog that kind of goes into this a little bit more, and we'll have that cited in the show notes too. But she really dives into the difference between water clarity and water quality and, and kind of what that means. And the other issue here on water quality is your oxygen content of the water. So as a byproduct of photosynthesis, the plant takes in carbon dioxide and it releases oxygen. Well, with hydrilla just running nonstop on the photosynthesis side, it is pumping oxygen out like crazy. Here's the problem, though. The same enzyme in photosynthesis that takes the carbon dioxide and turns it into new plant parts, it will also bind oxygen. The problem is it doesn't want the oxygen and it can't use the oxygen. So it's a real defect in how that enzyme is designed. So if you have a lot of oxygen in the water, the plants are going to take it up because they can't differentiate it. It gets in that enzyme, then all of a sudden the plant goes, oh, I can't use this. So now I've got to do extra work to get rid of that oxygen again because I don't need it. It's a byproduct for me. So when you have all this oxygen in the water, photosynthesis kind of starts running backwards. So instead of it taking carbon from the air or from the water and turning it into plants, it's taking oxygen and then burning carbon to get that oxygen released again. So the plant starts to really suffer, except hydrilla. Of course it, not. Of course not. It has this extremely novel photosynthesis mechanism that it's cranking along as a C3 plant. So for those of you that have had botany or biology classes, a C3 plant, they just rock along really efficiently, turning carbon into other plant parts. But they can also, some plants are C4, and that means they can shift and shield themselves from high oxygen. As far as we know, I think hydrilla is the only plant that is C3 and then turns itself into C4. Usually they're one or the other. So most plants are either C3 photosynthesis or C4, and it's based on how they handle too much oxygen or low carbon dioxide in the environment, okay? Well, so for example, corn, 
is a C4 plant. So it likes hot areas where the plant has to start, you know, conserving water and it starts having low carbon dioxide and you have all of these things, right? Or you have soybeans, which is a C3 plant. They're one or the other. Most of your aquatic plants are C3 because it doesn't have big fluctuations of carbon or oxygen in the water. So C3 is the most efficient pathway. You don't have to maintain all this other metabolic machinery. So C3 is the way to go. Unless you're hydrilla and you are truly creating an oxygen storm in the water. So hydrilla rocks along, pumps all of this oxygen out there. The other native plants, they're now having to run photosynthesis backwards to deal with it. And Hydrilla goes, okay, well, now that this is our situation, I'm just going to switch over. And all of a sudden, now I'm a C4 plant. So I am totally immune to the environment that I have created. It is unbelievably novel. It is one of the few plants that I know of in the world that does this switching. And scientists all over the world, it was actually discovered by uh, George Bowes here at the University of Florida. He described this fairly extremely unique photosynthesis mechanism for the last 30 years, scientists all over the world have tried to figure out, can we incorporate this into other crop plants to make them more efficient so we can produce more food? The best scientists in the world have not been able to figure this out. Hydrilla figured it out. No problem. And just like water hyacinth, this plant's got it figured out. It knows how to survive. It creates a toxic environment that it is then immune to. It's fascinating. And then leaves the others that haven't evolved or adapted to that kind of mechanism kind of struggling, right? Uh, too bad, right? Too bad. You're not as uh, as evolutionarily advanced as me, so too bad. So not only is this plant waking up early, getting all the CO2, it's shading them out, and it's creating this oxygen-rich environment that they really don't do well with. So it is a one, two, three, triple whammy if you're a native plant. And then although you may see water clarity initially or at first and think that it's great, considering what water clarity means versus water quality is that nuance, right? That long-term effect. So now I need to talk out of the other side of my mouth for a second. I've just talked about how you've got all of this oxygen so much that it's problematic. Well, another problem that this plant creates is actually low oxygen conditions. So how can that be? How can you have too much and too little at the same time? Well, you got to think about how this plant grows. Where is all of your biomass? At all the top. Of, all of your biomass is at the top. That's where all of the photosynthesis is going on. And so that's where all of the oxygen output is? Abs okay. Yes, okay. absolutely. So it is cranking that oxygen into this really narrow layer up at the top of the water. But under that, you have a really low oxygen environment because – these leaves are really thin. They're really small. And they are built for a good time, not a long time, <laughs> right? They are here to do their thing and get out of the way so another tip can replace them. Because remember, there's thousands of tips growing at an inch a day, and they're constantly replacing each other. And they're more that, plant, that one sprig at the bottom is more concerned with all the top sprigs getting the good light. It wants to invest in new tissue because the newest tissue is the most metabolically active and the most efficient. So after a couple of days up in the sun, you've been hit by a lot of ultraviolet light. You're struggling and the plant goes, cool, we're, we've, our contract is expired here. Thank you for your service. We're going to drop you out and replace you with a new tip. So all of that plant material starts dropping down into the water column and it starts to decay. As it decays... All these bacteria and fungi start chewing on it, but they need oxygen to do that. 
So you've got super high oxygen right at the surface. And as soon as you get a foot under that mat, you have incredibly low dissolved oxygen. So here is where we run into a problem. So this plant starts to grow as soon as the season starts, March, April, right? Well, the longest day of the year is June 21st, first day of summer, okay? So now there's maximum sunlight. So the plant is putting on maximum biomass. But after June 21st, the days start getting successively shorter. So now all of a sudden you get into July, not a whole lot shorter, but shorter. August, a little shorter. September, a little shorter still. But now you've got all of this biomass. You've got all the biomass that you can possibly have, but we're starting to run short on light. So as the days get shorter, we don't have enough energy to support all of the leaves that are out there. So all the work that hydrilla plant did in the summer during the prime time, it now is left with during those winter months with less light. It start, you're running out of light. You just do not have enough energy to support all the biomass you have out there. Now, you compound that with September is still super hot. We have, and the water has been heating up, heating up, heating up all summer, and it is still hot. Hot water holds less oxygen than cold water. So you've got maximum water temperatures, and it can not hold a whole lot of oxygen to begin with. Now you've got massive amounts of biomass that is starting to teeter. So now we're kind of at a tipping point because, my gracious, we don't have enough light hardly. If you then hit two or three days, four days of cloudy weather, let's say a storm front comes through, a tropical storm comes through, and you've got a few days of cloudy weather, socked in gray skies, sunlight goes down by, you know, 70%. Now we're tremendous deficit on enough light. This plant is teetering anyway. So it just starts dropping leaves like crazy. And the shorter, and if y'all think about it, when is hurricane season in Florida? When would this happen? When the days are getting shorter? During the fall? So we find ourselves in this perfect storm scenario. Now, when you have this happen, you have three or four days of, of cloudy weather, dissolved oxygen goes to almost zero, and you can have fish kills. Now, people will say, I just don't believe this, right? Because if we had all these fish kills, we would see them. And yeah, we hear of a fish kill every year or two, but it's not that big a deal. But again, think about hydrilla grows. Where is all of your biomass? The top. It's all up there at the top, and it's all matted out in huge mats, sometimes hundreds of acres. It's like tangled hair, y'all, if you haven't been through it. It's not a joke. So you've got open water under it that is super low oxygen. So now you have low DO, you will have fish kills, and they start floating, but they hit the bottom of that mat and they never go to the surface. So there are lots of fish kills every year that you never see because the fish don't break through. They go up, they hit the bottom of that mat, and then they fall back down. So fish kills are very, very common when you have maxed out hydrilla in the fall. So we just went through some of the reasons why people would want this plant in a lake and some of the reasons why it's tricky when it is in a lake and, and the benefits or the impacts that it has on the ecosystem. So when it comes to management and really facing this plant in reality and, and looking at Florida's lakes, 
can we have the best of both worlds with this situation? Like, why can't we just leave a little in a lake so that everyone's happy, right? The angler can go and interact with the hydrilla and bass fish and the kayaker doesn't get tangled up every 10 seconds and they can go tubing. Like, where, where do we see the balance? So here's the problem is how little is a little and how much is too much? So it depends on how that water is being used. Is it primarily a bass fishing lake? Well, if it is, then a little can be 50%. If it's primarily a pleasure craft lake, then maybe 10% is too much. So there, herein lies the problem is people, we can't define how little is too little, how much is too much. Now, compound that even worse, how do you just leave a little? When we're talking about a plant that can grow 191 inches a day, a little can turn into a lot in just a few weeks. So trying to use an invasive plant that has this marvelous growth rate that actively suppresses the growth of your native plants, leaving a little is very, very difficult. It's almost like we don't want to turn our back for just a second on something that can grow so fast. And, and herein lies a lot of the controversy because our managing agencies have historically said, if you turn your back on it, it, you will regret it. So they have tried to manage it at super low levels so that if there is a disruption in funding one year and they can't get back to treat, things are not going to get out of hand. But then other folks go, no, wait a minute. That is not enough for how I want to use this water. So what we've ended up with is a group that says more, 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 knowing that more may not be in their best interest. And another group that says none, 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 even though they know that's not in the state's best interest either. So trying to figure out where on this continuum we really need to be, that's what's tough. And let's further complicate this. When you look at the state of Florida right now and you look at the surveys, we currently have more hydrilla in this state than we have had in the last six or 10 years. So are we at a too much level? Are we at a probably just about right level? It's time to have this conversation and really be honest about what we need, not what we want, but what we truly need to be able to use the water to the best of our ability. Yeah. And coming, hearing these things from the managing agencies, they are actively going and listening to stakeholders and trying to create plans with and alongside these individuals and hear people out and work with professionals and experts and get advice. So it's very, it's a complicated thing to have to handle and, and to be responsible for. Um, so it's important to then, like this episode, consider all sides of the story, all the perspectives. And then like our landscapes episode, lakes and landscapes episode, every lake is an individual. It has its own personality and uses. And if you want to be part of this conversation, you need to show up. It's really easy to chirp on social media or to complain in your small groups. But if you really think that there is too much hydrilla in your system as for you as a homeowner, come to the public meetings and take part in the conversation. If you truly think that as a sportsman, there's not enough there, show up and participate and be a willing participant. So this is what we need more than anything is people to actually show up and participate in this process in a positive way. And I would say a great place to get started is what's happening on my lake. The FWC, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, has excellent resources on their website. They share when these meetings are going to happen. And again, there's information on your local or regional biologists who you can reach out to via email and, and ask questions or say, hey, I can't make the meeting, but I want my voice heard. Can I include it in the email or something? Like they're there for you. They're ready to listen. 
and they are actively developing lake management plans as we speak. So if you live on a lake, and Mark Hoyer says all the time, Mark Hoyer, the director of Lake Watch, he, he, he'll go down in history as saying the most important lake on, in Florida is my lake. So if you have a my lake, then show up and participate in that lake management plan so that your voice can be heard and it can be part of how that lake is managed for the next several years. So to round out this episode, hydrilla is one of Florida's most complicated aquatic weeds to manage, whether it's in the field or in a boardroom making decisions. And as you learned in this episode with Dr. Farrell, this plant has an incredible way of utilizing the aquatic ecosystem, right? Absolutely. It, depending on if it wants to change its photosynthesis mechanism, whether or not it wants to reproduce by tubers or turions or fragments, this plant is really good at occupying space in an aquatic habitat, doing good and bad at the same time. And so we decided to dedicate our next episode to talk about this plant just a little bit more with a guest. Uh, so stay tuned for our next episode as we sit down with Jason Dotson. Um, he's the section leader of FWC Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. And he wants to sit down and talk just how controversial this management can get with this plant. And he's a biologist and fisherman himself. So this will be pretty cool. So if you don't want to miss that episode, you should subscribe to our podcast and you're welcome to follow us at UFI Escape on all social media platforms. We look forward to seeing you there.